all dis- distinguishing them, but uh, we speak the same language in the spirit. That's the main thing. I feel like uh, there's the message I've been pondering the last couple of days is, is more of a, sometimes you preach a message and you, you think this is, I, I feel like I'm supposed to challenge the church. But in this, I feel like I'm just supposed to affirm the church. Because the theme that's running in my spirit is something that I see that you guys are, have already caught hold of, and it's something that you're working to implement, and that it's really in the heart of the church. So I trust that this will be an encouragement and an affirmation about direction. You know, you read the Gospels, and you, uh, as we're always encouraged, look to Jesus as our example. And there's some passages that that stand out, and we wonder, well, what would the application be? And this, in this case, it's the idea when Jesus went into the temple, he began to flip tables, right? Began to flog and flip tables, and he got, he got adamant in the temple. You think, well, what would a, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, right? We're supposed to be those uh, sweet Christians that endure all things, hope all things, believe all things, etc. But you go, Jesus is our example. What was going on when he walked into the temple? It's in three of the four Gospels. So this, is, this was a big deal that every three of the four writers felt like they were supposed to record it. In Matthew eleven eleven, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. That's the only of the three Gospels that, that show that sequence, that Jesus had actually come into Jerusalem. He went into the temple and he checked it out. It said he looked at all things. He examined it. But it was already late, so he decided to go sleep on it. And you think about be angry but sin not, and you think about did Jesus just come in and explode? And you just have a, 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 you know, an, an angry moment, a, a, a reactionary moment where he began to just raise havoc and flip things over. Well, in this gospel, it brings it out. They actually came in the night before. He checked it out. He thought about it. And he went back to Bethany. And then we pick it up again in verse 15. It said, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So we see his motive. Thought about it, he came back, and he said, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow when I get there. (laughs) I'm going to raise holy hell in a sense. I'm going, to, I'm going to address this issue. But in addressing the issue, we just see him flipping over tables, and the word that steps, uh, jumps out is the money changers. But we can see also in the passage they were selling turtle doves, and there was other merchandising going on in the temple. And his reaction was, have you not, written, or have you not seen it written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And in our mind, we think about, oh, well, the problem was it wasn't a house of prayer. The problem was that, you know, you think about a house of prayer. Now in our, the last three, four decades, there is houses of prayer as a movement raising up all over the world. Places dedicated, sometimes affiliated with churches, sometimes just in the center of communities. 
Places that are dedicated for prayer, the House of Prayer movement. I've been to Kansas City multiple times, been on the campus, stayed there, watched how they, they're doing 24-7 prayer, maintaining worship constantly, unending, unbroken. And out of that movement and others like it, there's prayer meetings and places dedicated to prayer all the, way, all the way around the world. Like We can get a good glimpse of what does it mean to be dedicated to prayer. But was that the only thing that was working in Jesus' mind? Did he say, I come into this place and I don't see enough prayer going on. I don't see enough devotional things. I don't hear worship going in the background. Was that what was running in his mind? We also see that the idea of the money changer stepped out. And this, this is one of the things that we know he was addressing. That the temple had become, actually, the, the story of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt and settling in this place, the promised land and all that was modern Bible t times and lands when Jesus got there, that it had, a, it had a, a story that would have been understood internationally and by other nations around it, that they knew the, the story of this Israeli people being led by God out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, the tradition of a supernatural crossing. We see in the scriptures when they came into the uh, promised land that they had to fight the ites. But that God had gone before him in many places, the, the uh, reputation of Israel had preceded them. And he did this a massive sign and wonder over them as a gathered nation. If you look at illustrations of when they would camp in the wilderness and just the formation and the order and the organization, how they divided into 12 around the tabernacle. And then in, at nighttime, there's this massive pillar of fire by night and a massive cloud by day. So God put out this amazing witness about this people. Now they've settled in a land and they build a temple. And the temple itself was on a mount, and it was a huge, like, 40-story structure. It, it was amazing. It was a monument. It was a landmark that could be seen for a while. So the, all of that to say that people were drawn to the temple. And they were drawn to this idea that the God that created the universe dwelled in there. And there was a mystique to it. And they knew it was divided into places where not everybody could, there was only one person once a year could actually go and gaze on the presence of God that dwelt between the cherubim over the Holy of Holies, right? So that, that's the story. There was a mystique. It was a draw. It was that people wanted to go and see, and what was this about? So when they would go to the temple, you couldn't get you know, updates on the internet, and you couldn't get tourist information. I mean, they made a journey in the desert. There's still one of the entrances up to the temple that you can see today was where the visitors came. And so visitors, both Jew and, and, and Jews had an annual pilgrimage where there were three times a year they were supposed to come up to the temple to celebrate the feast. But foreigners would come. So when the foreigners would come, they invented, the business people around there, they invented the temple shekel. And so what would happen is you couldn't buy the turtle doves or other offerings to present the priests, whether you were a, you know, a Gentile or a Jew, you had to first exchange your money into a temple denarii. You, you had to swap shekels. And so in the swapping, there was a devaluation of money. It's like you're going from the euro to the pound, right? I mean, so, so there was a currency exchange that the guys were taking the middle. 
And they were taking advantage of the people who were coming to the temple to worship, coming to the temple, being drawn just to come into the presence of this amazing story that they've heard. So they were taking advantage of people. And then the whole idea of, you know, uh, other things known about, hey, you have to offer this sacrifice is a better sacrifice than this. So people were coming and not even understanding the whole Jewish worship system, but they would be caught up in it and the people would take advantage. Say, you don't want that guy's turtle doves, there's gray marks, right? You want the pure, your pure white ones or all of that merchandising thing that was going on. That was all happening in the courts. And Jesus saw it. And Jesus addressed it, but it wasn't just the fact that they were money changers. It wasn't just the fact that they were selling or taking advantage of people. There was something behind the whole idea of God's house that he was addressing. Because he says, have you not heard? My father's house will be called a house of prayer. And then he said, for all nations. And in our modern reaction, we would say, we would understand this better, that we know how to build a place, a house, that's supposed to be a house of prayer. And that's been kind of the traditional emphasis on that verse. God's house should be a house of prayer. But the second half of that phrase is for all nations. And that's the part that I want to talk about. Because if we look at where Jesus pulled that out of, he pulled it out of Isaiah 56. And just let's just look at a few verses in that and talk about it. 56 verse 3. I think that's, yep, that's up. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain and say, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it on all who hold fast to my covenant. Look at this in verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what Jesus quoted from. And we could say, well, he wants it to be a house of prayer. But in the original thought, it was the more of the emphasis was he wants his house to be a house for all nations. In other words, he's after the inclusive factor. He's prophesying of a time where it isn't going to be about just the Jews only, but Jesus is called to be the Savior of the world, right? And that even though it's modeled by Israel, by the Jews, under a priesthood that came through Abraham and came through Moses, but the emphasis was someday it's going to be a place that's going to be attractive to all nations, so we could say, well, he said it's going to be a house of prayer, and we could put the emphasis on the house of prayer, but actually the original thought was, no, it's a house for all nations. It's a house of inclusion. And I could just say, even in modern day, as contemporary as we've gotten, that you can go to places, and the spirit over the church is more about the form, more about looking spiritual, more about having the spiritual elements. That's all good. But there needs to be, to do what God wants us to do right now in this wave, 
He's pouring out his spirit. We all, and this is why I want to commend you, because I know Mike's heart. There's something in him that wants to make it inclusive. There's something. See, see the idea, the fact that he would call out in Isaiah, he'd reference the eunuch. In Deuteronomy, eunuchs were forbidden in Israeli worship because they were considered part of the uh, desecrated or mangled would be the, the term. So they weren't even allowed under the book of Deuteronomy to access Israeli worship. And there's other people that were listed. And God was using that language at a particular time for a particular point, like... My priesthood, I don't want, you know, he called out, you can't have any defects, and it goes into a big list, and it's kind of strange places in Scripture. But that was for another time for another purpose. What we really see woven through the Scripture is the heart of our God is an inclusive heart, that he wants people of all spectrum, every situation, every circumstance. He's after broken people. He's after wealthy people. But he, he was contending Jesus was contending with those guys when he's flipping over the temple and those things. He said, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. In other words, he was saying, you guys are putting up stumbling blocks for the nations to come to my house. And he dealt with that all the time in the Pharisees. There was an elitism. There was an exclusivity that came over the worship. There was an exclusivity that came over the priesthood. And, and, and they had it. No one else didn't. And they were going to protect the very fact that we're the elect. And we have the authority. And we've got the, the hierarchy. And that was the whole issue that he kept bouncing off of. And, and here was, it was also reflective in the model. And when he came up against that, he was saying, do not put stumbling blocks in front of the nations. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of people who want to come to church and find a place of worship in God's house. Because he, he told this about the eunuchs, that language that he said, I'm going to give you a place in my temple. Look at this. He said, I'm going to give you a place within my temple and its walls where you will have a memorial and you will have a name. Now, understand, if you were a eunuch, you couldn't reproduce. You never had natural children. If you became a eunuch for whatever reason, you, were never, you never had a lineage. You never had a, a physical lineage coming from you because you've been altered, so to speak, right? And you've been neutered for whatever purpose. But, it, but he said this, better than natural sons or daughters, I'm going to gather you and set you, put a place for you in my house. And you're going to have a lineage that's better than a natural lineage. You're going to have a lineage that you're going to be connected to an everlasting name. How powerful that is. That God wants to create a belonging in his house for people like a eunuch that say, I'm dry, barren. I'm, I'm, I don't have fruit. <laughs> My life was messed up. I don't have a future. I don't have a legacy. There's nothing in my current circumstances that I'm going to leave a lineage. You might, you might have a natural child here or there, but the idea of being cut off from the sense of, in the Israeli mindset, of leaving a legacy, leaving, a gener leaving generations. And the, so that was what Isaiah was prophesying. No, the day's going to come where nobody's going to say in God's house, I'm just a dry tree. Nobody's going to say in God's house, I've been cut off from God's people. That I'm going to do something in my house and I'm going to change it. There's going to be a sense of belonging. And, and so you got to understand this. So for God to say, this is my intention, belonging, he has to raise up people who say, we're going to make God's house, not just a house of all prayer or a house of prayer, but a house of prayer for all nations, all people groups. We're going to make room for 
people groups in God's house. So it takes a leadership to acknowledge that that's God's heart, that what he wants to do. And I'm in and out of networks and in and out of nations and places. And, and I could tell you for us in our church where the most significant shift happened, and I, I'm affirming this in you guys already, that on a Sunday I took three signs. I made signs this big on a stick in a little coffee can, if you ever remember what those were, and put them in concrete, and I, I had them on the platform. And I put three words together, and one was behave, one was believe, and one was belong. Said in the, the church is one particular that I came from. If you behave right and you believe right, then you can belong. And then some are just, well, because they don't even know really what they believe, so it's just if you behave, then you can belong, and then you learn to believe, right? But, it, but I knew that this was what was in God's heart, that if you create belonging, then people will come along and they'll learn how to believe. And sometimes behaving is the last of the three. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. And, and that can be offensive to people. Like there can be you know, a strong reaction that they don't, they don't behave right. So why should we create or allow for a sense of belonging? But I'm just telling you from the scripture, when God says, my heart will be a house of prayer, it'll also be a house of belonging. And, it, and if you want your tables to stay upright, you keep that as a place of belonging. Otherwise, he comes and starts flipping things. Amen? And so I, I affirm that in this place. Mike, thank you for having a heart for your community. Thank you for having a heart for Wales. Thank you for making that a priority. And Helen, both of you, you told a beautiful story yesterday, something that this was amazing. There was somebody, maybe you're in this room, they're coming to the co coffee shop regularly and, and connecting with the coffee shop and, and just saying this to Helen that I feel like I've really found family here. And for that to be the number one testimony after saying, how's the coffee shop doing? Hearing that testimony instead of hearing, oh, we made $1,000 last month. or it, it wasn't about money. It was about people connecting. It's about what's happening in hearts when they come into this place. They begin to connect with each other. I'm just saying that's in God's heart. Amen? So thank you for that, for modeling that. Amen? And God's going to continue to bless you guys. It's found in another place, and then we're going to shift off of, because we have the exciting privilege today of praying for new elders. But in the book of Acts 15, it says, After this... Acts 15, 16, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I'll set it up. And so the, the idea of the tabernacle of David, some of you would know this, but in modern worship movements, so if you take uh, what's happened after Mar with Maranatha music going back that far, they were probably really prolific in the revelation behind what they were doing and the freedom of worship that they were offering and got blessed in the body of Christ. And other groups like that, organizations like that, that when they talk about contemporary Christian music, reintroducing into the church guitars and drums that were fought for so long... But when they brought music back into the house, and then there was dance, and there was procession, and there was flags, and there was banners. And so the church went through, at the time of charismatic renewal, a massive uh, 
you know, I would just say reformation and worship arts and in presence and all of that, they would connect it back to the restoration of the tabernacle of David. And we knew in David's time, it talked about the instruments that he built and the, and the musicians that he mobilized and that he set up this place where it wasn't a veil between the Holy of Holies and the people. But in that time, in that uh, prophetic window that he set that tabernacle up, people could actually, the common person could gaze on the presence of God. And so then we went back into the temple reform and they rebuilt the temple and they had the Holy of Holies and they moved it behind the third veil and, and all that ha happened afterward, which was according to God's purpose. I'm not saying that, but it was according to God's purpose. But then the, the prophesied that, again, in the latter days, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. In other words, everybody can look on the glory of God themselves. Amen. So that's in God's plan. And then out of that expression in modern Christianity, we said, well, there needs to be pageantry, there needs to be worship, there needs to be singing, and all of what now is uh, what we take for granted actually came out of this idea that God wants that in church. Because the longest time in many movements, that was blocked out of church. There wasn't music. There wasn't celebration. So there's the connection with the idea of what David did prophetically, we're going to introduce back into worship, and that's awesome. That's why the, I think our experience is so amazing. But there's people that would say, it's all about that. It's all about the worship. It's all about uh, an event. It's all about what we can present on a Sunday when we gather together. And it's connected to this restoration of the tabernacle of David. I agree with all of that. But there's, again, this connecting thought that needs to be running through us. Because what did he say? I'll set up the tabernacle of David again. But verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Same connection again. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but for all nations, that all nations might find inclusion and belonging. This thought again, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. Awesome. We'll have worship and praise and dance and pageantry. Yeah, so that everyone will be able to seek the Lord. Amen. There's the belonging connection on both of those thoughts about what God had in mind for the church. Amen. So we want Jesus to come in and say, nothing to flip over here, right? Everything's good. Priorities are right. People are being touched. People are being blessed. I'm being worshiped. There's a sense of family. Amen. So I just want to affirm you in that, because that really is the spirit of the church. So I think you should give yourself an applause. Amen. I really do. And Pastor Mike, stand up. <laughs> Helen, stand with him. Amen. Do, do a spin around. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Good. Good job, guys. Seriously. But you're not alone. And with you, God adds a team. And so we got the privilege today to pray for Joe and Jules as they are officially recognized. And, and there's been a time that you can see the grace of God on their life and they function to add life and value and vision to the church and to support these guys. And so today we're basically acknowledging what God's already done and God started in their hearts. But I, I want to share something with you. Maybe you haven't thought about this before. But... 
Because it's, it's sort of a strange thought, but I've been studying this out and pulling things both all the way back from Genesis chapter 1 into the book of Revelations. But have you ever thought about the reality that there's an eldership in heaven? It's, li- it's listed about 10 times, well, 10 times in the book of Revelation alone, but you can pull thoughts out woven all the way from Genesis through the Psalms to this idea of Zechariah, that there's an eldership. And you think about in the beginning where God said, let us make man. He didn't say, I think I will. He said, let us. It's in the Elohim, the collective thought. And you know, in, in the Hebrew, that that's not only a reference to God, but it's a reference to like a plurality or an eldership. It shows up in some really interesting things. Like this concept that there is an eldership. Because all of us would think, why would God, why would Jesus need an eldership? <laughs> right? He sits on the throne. He's, he's above all that's never challenged or questioned. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. That scripture's known. He's the expressed image of God's glory. So all of these things about Jesus, he wouldn't need an eldership. He's Jesus. Knows all, could do all. He's Jesus. Yet he has an eldership. And you think about, we're going to pull a couple attributes about the eldership in heaven, but if you look at how that played out all the way from let us make, in other words, there's a collective mind involved in everything that God does. And you follow that storyline and, and you get as far as Moses, when Moses gets called and, and this giant nation of peoples following, it becomes overwhelming and it's his father-in-law gives them some ideas about how to organize Jethro principles. We call them captains over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and all of that. But God said, no, this is how it's actually going to work. They tried to organizationally. They got some limited success. But he said, this is how it's going to work. I want you to find 70 people, 70 men. Get them all out in one place. He said, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to take the spirit that's on you, And I'm going to put that spirit upon them. And he did it. And when he did it, they all prophesied, which I think is significant. Because there's another time in scripture where Saul was called to be the first king with no pattern in front of him. And he gets called and and like, how do I do this? And and Samuel said, this is how it'll work. You'll go up and you'll join this company of prophets. They're going to be singing and worshiping. As they're coming down from the hill, you'll join them. And the spirit of prophecy is going to come upon you. And you'll prophesy and be changed into another man. In other words, a prophetic spirit can come on the people of God so we can see things different. I mean, I I feel like I'm preaching out of a prophetic spirit. I know the direction to please God and to accommodate the harvest that he has in the earth. It's going to take an enlargement of people's hearts. So as I'm preaching, I'm believing that the spirit of God is going to take understanding from the scripture and do something in our heart. We'll be changed to a people of belonging, right? and, And most of you already are. You wouldn't be in this church. But that collectively, the body of Christ has to shift and say, belonging means more than believing right. Yeah, you can have a few screwy doctrines. Most of us probably do, and we don't even know it, right? And, and you could, the idea of what, what does behaving look like, and we're, we're, we're softening in this sense. And I, I grew up in the Jesus people movement. I got born again in that. And Chuck Smith, the leader, that also became a friend. And he talked about early days where they had just put brand new carpet in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. 
That was the day everybody wore suit and ties to church. That was the day where things were formal and you were recognized for your behavior. Decently and in order. Let all things be done decently in order. Well, their daughter began to hang out on the beach and started making friends with hippies. And uh, then a few of the hippies got saved. And they got invited, their daughter invited them into the home and started telling stories to their mom and dad about what God was doing among the hippies. Well, dad got curious, especially because there was this one guy named Lonnie Frisbee had a miracle and healing ministry. And so Chuck wanted to see what that looked like. So he invited him into their house and they got talking. God began to convict him and said, hey, we want you guys to be able to come to church. Well, he talks about the battle that he had with his elders because they just put in new carpet. And these people wanted to come in barefoot. And, and, and so you think, well, take your shoes off. No, we just don't want those oily, greasy feet on our carpet. And, so they, and they didn't want to sit in chairs. He talks about they wanted to come sit in front of the chairs on the floor because they were used to sitting in circles on the floor. So that's what they wanted to do. And so the shift that they had to do to accommodate, and the come, people would come in bathing suits, so they had a stack of T-shirts that the ushers would give girls because of the bikini tops that were coming <laughs> in the back. And the whole thing, how he had to shift to accommodate this move of God that thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. Just an illustration. How many are really willing to bend a little to be part of the harvest for whales? Amen? Absolutely. So elders in heaven... So I want to just share a couple things. In Revelations 4.4, it says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So you, you can think about that. If, if you just think about it this way, oh, that's just part of the decor, Right? That's just part of the formality of heaven. There's angels, there's these four living creatures, and then there's these elders. Well, if you go on, in Revelation 4.9, elders, they're worshipers. That whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, and they, they make a confession. Blessed is he. Amen? And it said that they also lay their throne or their crowns before him. So I think about why did God include... Because we, we see organizationally, all the way Old Testament and New Testament, there's elders. And he wants us to move in the same spirit. But if you look at elders as it talks about them in heaven, one of the things that we see in the elders, they're worshipers. They pattern worship. And they also pattern the idea that in the presence of Jesus, we take our crowns off and we acknowledge he is the king of kings. Amen. So the role of the elders is to help bring the quality of heaven into a church. And one of the things is their patterns of worship and their patterns of honoring to Jesus, making sure and helping establish that the honor to Jesus comes before the honor of anybody else. Amen. And we could say it another way. Elders are set in the house to keep the set man humble. Amen. <laughs> Indirectly, not, not by challenging, but there's the idea that collectively we put a pattern. When we're in leadership, we put a pattern. Jesus comes first, we worship him, and our crowns are submitted to his crowns. Amen. Is that, is that okay? The elders teach Revelation, Revelation 5. It, John was saying, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, 
Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed over him. And then I saw a lamb, and he, he gets an understanding. It's just like in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra's reading from the law. The people are caught up in a holy moment. They all begin to weep. And it was the Levites that went among them, help them to understand. They said, no, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is an awesome day. This is a great day. So elders help bring interpretation to spiritual atmosphere of what God's saying and what God's doing. They, they help with the understanding. They, they give insight. In Revelations 5.8, it goes on, And when they had taken to the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song, saying, You're worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for, for God persons from every tribe and language. And then in verse 10, You've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. If you meditate that, this was an early morning meditation, so... You're, I'm always, you know, the problem of writing sermons in the middle of the night or early in the morning, there's, there's more of a, you're, you're in the revelation and the, the dramatization of it and the bigness of it. It's like, whoa, yeah, and thinking it's going to land and people, wow, yeah, and then preaching it right now, you go, this is kind of wordy and this is a little, you know, anyway, <laughs> taking a chance right now. But the insight... The insight to eldership in this is they were, they were a pattern of priesthood for the purpose of God. And notice that even though they were the ones that had the incense of the prayers of the saints, and so they were like intercessors and, and you'd say ushering the prayers of God's saints and the, the needs of God's saints up to God, yet they could also say by revelation that you've made them a kingdom of priests to serve God. In other words, again, that pattern of humility like, we are the priests, but they're all priests. I might be an elder, but everything that God wants me to do as an elder towards him in service, he actually wants it in all of the people. And so that's the, the elders help pattern the life of the kingdom, the purpose of the kingdom, the priesthood of the kingdom, the worship of the kingdom, the serving of Jesus into the whole body. And, and I believe that those attributes, I don't know them well, but from the... the observations that I've had being around Joe and Jules and also from Mike's testimony and conversation with him that you guys pattern those things and I believe today as we formalize the eldership through the anointing that you're going to just grow in that and you're going to help the church just come into a more of a spiritual understanding because not one person could carry what God wants to do in the people amen let us make man <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We think about Jesus in that relationship where he said, I only do the things I see my Father doing. And so we think, well, he's just kind of walked like a puppet. That doesn't bear out in Scripture. Because he said the Father gave him the ability to give life. He said the Father gave him the ability to lay his life down or to take his life up. But what it really meant is there was a mutual submission in the kingdom purposes. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there was in that fellowship... In the plurality expression, the Holy Spirit is, is the same way. It's like what is, what's in the mind of God, there's an implementation through Jesus and the Holy Spirit in earth. And what is the mind of God for a church is collectively found in eldership. 
And, and there's different people bring different parts. And the richness, the fullness of the richness of what God has here is going to really be realized when el- an eldership is completed and everybody's flowing in their measure. Amen? So planting a church, you can lead it, and, and you have to be strong like you are. You have to be a strong leader. You have to you know, oversee. You have to give direction. And, and God does work through an individual to the eldership in the book of Revelations, to the messenger of the church of, say this, to the messenger. There was a point person. The messenger was the lead person over the church in the book of Revelations. So Jesus is giving a message to the lead person to give to the whole church. So we see that there is identified, not only there, but other places in the early writings of the church father. They called him the bishop, was the bishop, the elders, and the deacons. That was the government that was recognized. So there's a set man, and God will speak through the set man, but it's carried, articulated, and the mind of God is found in an eldership. Amen? So to do what you guys are going to do in this region, it's going to be because uh, an effective eldership is established, and there already is... Rich is part of that. Tim is coming along in that. And so got good people here. Amen. So however, should we call them up? What do you want to do next? Okay. We call the kids back in. Yeah. And we'll, we will pray and, and move forward. But it's all, there's also, I know that idea where God said, take the spirits that's on you. I'll take the spirit that's on you. I'll put it on them. Again, that was in response so that Moses wouldn't be overwhelmed, right? So the dispersing of the oversight of the church, that's why there's other elders get set, so that the load and the work of overseeing this is distributed. How many know that's important, right? And so it's important that you guys recognize the authority on Joe and Jules, and the trust begins to develop. I think it already is, but that so the work is distributed, so it's not just Pastor Mike. Because I, I, know, I know this dynamic. Uh, we've planted three churches from scratch. So I know the different phases that you go through in building a church and all of the stuff that, that comes with that. But when things are developing and forming and, and there's still needs not being met in certain places or stuff that needs to happen that isn't regular enough. And it's like in the book of Acts. The reason they chose seven deacons, because somebody was getting shorted, Right? We weren't, we weren't getting our distribution. So the disciples said, hey, just in the kingdom priority, it's good that we don't give our time to that. So we're going to find people to take care of that because we're supposed to be in the word of pray- and prayer. So they identified those seven guys. But again, it was all about because somebody's need wasn't being met. And in the early days, there's needs that don't get met. And so then it'll say a, a disruption will arise or eruption will arise because somebody's or some people's needs aren't getting met. The good thing about eldership is that it, the conversation in a church that's vulnerable as you're growing up, when you're, you're of a different size, you're vulnerable, is because the accusation that the enemy would do would be, what's wrong with him? He isn't seeing this need. But when you get eldership, now it's what's wrong, what's wrong with them. <laughs> and that balances things a lot better. Amen? You won't, you'll feel you're not going to take the hits. As things get set, it's like, don't put your finger at me. Put your finger at us. And then all of a sudden, when you're at the table, wait a second, we're out, we outnumber you. And so that's when the, the warfare, you begin to create a strength that becomes way, way more valuable. I hope that makes sense.
It will to some, and that's all that matters today because it's, we have a specific purpose for building the church and seeing the church going forward. So should we invite those guys up to the platform? How do you want to do it?